for our second message today. We have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Walking Worthily, Part 1. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here on this 49th day here, the day before Pentecost. So as Reggie pointed out, today's message is entitled, Walking Worthily, Part 1. And a few weeks ago, in my previous message, I went over the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and I began uh, a sermon series as I'm trying to get through. And we learned that in the first chapter of Thessalonians, in that first message, we learned that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians after receiving a report from Timothy who went to check on how they were doing. Paul establishes in the book of Acts, we see he has some traveling companions. They go and establish the church there in Thessalonica. And then later when they're not there, eventually he sends Timothy to go and check to see how the church is doing. And upon report from Timothy, Paul writes this letter. And so in that message, and you didn't have to be here for that message, for this message today to make sense. I try to make all of them independently. I mean, they're definitely linked, but they are standalone messages themselves. So you didn't have to be here uh, a few weeks ago when I went over the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. But the points that we went over included, number one, being a community that was committed to Christ. And we looked at what that you know, entails and kind of try to glean some things from the Apostle Paul and what he was writing to the Thessalonians there in that first chapter. Secondly, we looked at being a community empowered by the Holy Spirit. As Paul goes through his missionary journeys, we see the evidence is that the Spirit was with him as he boldly, and it's going to be one of our points today, as he boldly proclaimed the gospel message to these different, oftentimes predominantly Gentile, uh, little towns or little cities. And the third point that we went over in 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, is being a community that is differentiated from other religions or different religions. And so today, we are going to go over 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, originally... I was going to go through chapters 1 through 12. And in the process of looking at this message this week, for the sake of time, I decided to break this section of Scripture into two. So the first scriptures, or the first message is going to go over chapters 1 and 2 today. And then next week, because I speak again next week, we're going to go through verses 3 through 12. Now the title of these two little parts within this series that I'm doing on 1 Thessalonians the title of Walking Worthily is actually based on the very end of this section that I'm, you know, I, when, I, when I look at a letter, you know, we, you maybe have a Bible uh, that you use, a study Bible, and you'll see there's natural breaks uh, where maybe the, the people who put the Bible together might title a section of Scripture. And that's kind of what I did, is chapters, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is kind of a natural break. And so... Verse 12 is actually the inspiration for the title. Verse 12, and picking it up and starting in verse 11, if you were to read that, we're going to read that in a minute. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so that is where this title comes from. And so there's four words here. Four words that Paul uses. There's more than four words. There's four words I want to point out. Number one, exhorted. And number two, charged. Paul exhorted and charged. Exhorted meaning to call upon, to admonish, to persuade. With charge meaning to make a solemn appeal. So Paul and his traveling companions, because he was with Silas and Timothy whenever they were first there and they established first Thessalon- or the Thessalonian church. Uh, Paul and them, they admonished, they persuaded, they made a solemn appeal that the Thessalonians would walk worthy, worthy of the gospel of God in which they were called, the gospel of God in which you were called into the glory of his kingdom. And so that's what Paul, after he writes all those things, verse 11 and 12, kind of gives us that, you know, that exhortation to do something specific, and that was walk worthily. Now, the English language, the word worthily, and it is a word, 
is having adequate or great merit, character, or value, or a worthy successor of commendable excellence or merit. I like that second part, a worthy successor of commendable excellence or merit. Now, none of us are truly worthy of Christ or God. We all know that. And that's why Christ did what he did. But still yet, we've been given a spirit and we've been given a commission that our life, as it's being transformed, we're to strive to walk in a worthy manner. In a manner that is becoming, as the word worthy in the Greek says, that is suitable to the gospel of God. To the glory of the kingdom that God is bringing us into. So there are four specific characteristics that can be gleaned. More than that, probably. But in the, for the sake of this series, I picked four. Four specific characteristics that can be gleaned from Paul and his companions in this section that show an example of what it looks like to walk worthily. We will look at two of them today. So this is part one. Number one, which is interesting, completely connected to our first message today, walk with purpose. Walk with purpose. And we're going to see how Paul exhibited these and his traveling companions as he was following Jesus Christ, the model. The second point we will look at today is walk with boldness and courage. I couldn't give up. You know, I was going to just pick one word, but boldness, courage, they're, they're kind of, you know, words that are very similar. They're somewhat interlinked. And so, to start out, let's just read this section, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll kind of come back to that first main point. So, verse 1 of First Thessalonians chapter 2, it gets tough when you start talking about a number at the front, a number in the middle, a number at the end. Sometimes I get it mixed up. So if I say the wrong thing, I apologize. I try to slow down. Sometimes I get a little, bit, a little ahead of myself. So verse 1 says this of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the, the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing, or excuse me, uh, even as so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately, longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our, also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Verse 11, which we just read in 12. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. So the first point, walk with purpose. First one tells us that Paul says, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. And Paul here begins this section of the letter, chapter, chapter 2, by reminding the Thessalonians of something they already knew. Because he continually mentions this, that you already know, as you know, as you were witnesses. And he says that their coming to them was not in vain. Now there's some dispute on what this exactly means. All of them could be true, and you could, maybe they were, they're all true together. But the word in Greek is the word kina, which means empty-handed. Our coming to you was not empty-handed. It wasn't void. It wasn't lacking in content. And some translations have argued that it should be translated as insincere. 
So it seems apparent, we see this even starting in chapter 1 of this letter. We see that Paul's continually reminding the Thessalonians, remember your own witness of us and how we uh, conducted ourselves. How we acted among you. There's possibly some naysayers outside of the church in this community that had maybe accused Paul as not being sincere or serious when he came to Thessalonica or that they lacked earnestness, like a deep commitment. We are not completely sure what's motivating Paul to continually, continually talk about their own knowledge of how Paul and them acted. This may be why the reason points to so often, as I just mentioned, verse 1 of this chapter, 2, 5, 11, all of them, Paul continually says, you know, or as you know. And then in verse 9, he says, you yourselves are witnesses. We're not completely sure what the possible charges are against Paul, but it seems that he really wanted to emphasize and show that he was there for a specific purpose. He was there in sincerity. Maybe it was because little time that they were there. You know, they had left. And people said, oh, that Paul, well, he just came and he just ran off. And where is he at? He ain't even visited you yet. Because Paul was very concerned about Timothy going and checking on them to see how they were doing. Regardless of what may have been said about Paul and his companions, and I will just use the word companions oftentimes to refer to Silas and Timothy, the two individuals that were with him whenever they first established Thessalonians. If there is anything we can attest to about reading about the life of Paul, it's that one thing's for sure. He had an intense grasp on what his purpose was. And Paul wanted to be clear here, as he is in other letters, but specifically here in this first letter to the Thessalonians, a, a church that he hadn't seen in quite a while. And remember, this is early on in Paul's ministry. This isn't a late letter. This is a very early letter. Arguably, 1 Thessalonians and Galatians are the two argued letters on which one came first in, in, in terms of which letter Paul wrote first. Paul wanted to be clear on what his purpose and his number one priority was, which was to genuinely and faithfully serve the true and living God and to bring the gospel, as we know, he was commissioned to the Gentiles. He demonstrated this as he walked. He walked with a purpose. He walked with a purpose, which at, makes us ask the question, what is it about purpose? You know, why is our purpose in life so important? You know, I think one of the reasons is because it's one of the main criteria or criterion or frameworks or one of the main filters we use to make the choices that we make in life. Right? We look at our purpose. Sometimes we might not consider our purpose. Sometimes, you know, you hear a lot about what's your purpose. It's May right now. A lot of people are graduating. Kids, high schoolers. You hear those graduation speeches, right? They all talk about, you know, go find your purpose in life. Follow your dreams. Find out what you're made to do and things like that. Our purpose is at the epicenter of why we do what we do, when we do it, and how we do it. As well as any goals that we may set for ourselves. Now these two concepts, purpose and goals, are interlinked, right? I mean, they have a lot of similarity. There's some differences, but, but they're very similar in, in nature. And I, I think, you know, these two concepts, they're interlinked. And I was just thinking of, you know, of goals and this idea. And I want you in your mind right now just to think of some goals that maybe you have set for yourself before. Maybe you've set, maybe it's, you know, a goal that you are presently trying to obtain. You know, we all, you know, I, my whole life, I think, you know, since I've been of the teenage level and age, I think that there's been different goals. I haven't met all of them, of course. There's a lot of goals that, you know, every year I review. is like, yeah, that's a goal, but man, I really don't do much to work on it. You know, I haven't been real successful. Maybe these goals are personal, meaning like they're personal in your life. They're maybe just personal trying to better yourself. Uh, maybe they're professional, you know, something to do with your career or your job. Or maybe they're even spiritual, you know, spiritual goals. And we kind of, every year at Passover, right, we kind of, you know, lay out to some extent, even if it's, you know, we talk about we examine ourselves, right? We examine ourselves and we try to remove the old leaven even if we don't use the same words as goals and purpose and things like that, I mean, 
removing the old leaven and, and committing ourselves to keep it out is kind of like setting a goal. And so I think most of us can think of the typical goals that people, just generally speaking in our current culture, uh, that people set for themselves. And thinking on this this week, and out of curiosity, I just kind of did a quick Google search. I looked up some of the most common New Year's resolutions, which are basically goals, right? I mean, that's the most common time of year people start setting goals for themselves. And so I looked, you know, I just typed in, what are the most common goals of 2021? And, of course, I wanted to specifically think of, like, you know, in our country, in the United States. And I came across a top ten list published by a website called Statista.com, and it was taken from 531 adults that they had surveyed. And the findings, they weren't really that, uh, they, they weren't out of the ordinary. It's kind of what you would typically think whenever you would see people that talk about like things like New Year's resolutions or what they want to do to better themselves. They're very typical. Number one was exercise more. 44% of people had exercise more as their number one New Year's resolution. Secondly, 42% of people said eat healthier. 34% of people said spend more time with family and friends. I really like that. I really like that. I think that maybe the COVID thing, obviously, probably you know, bumped that up there and people realized how important it is to maybe be around people, maybe that some of those people, you know, uh, because let's just face it, you know, we have lived in Tulsa and Oklahoma and things have gotten shut down a little bit, but I don't think we understand completely at all how, you know, the level of shutdown that it, this prevented people from being able to, to come into contact with each other. 31% said lose weight, 30% said live more economically, uh, 24% uh, said spend less time on social media, that's a great goal. Spend less time on social media. 23% said improve job informants. 20% said reduce stress on job. 19% said quit smoking. And 15% said cut down on alcohol. So that's the top 10 list. So as I was thinking about this, you know, and we could all relate to this, is that if a person is to transform these goals into reality, maybe the goals that you've set before, and you can put this in your mind, they must, you must, we must take the necessary steps, right? in order to change our life, our priorities, in order to be successful in accomplishing these goals. If it's to live more economically, people must get on a budget and be disciplined to stick to it. If it's to eat healthier or lose weight, they must fill their pantry with healthier foods and practice self-control when it comes to the grocery store and mealtime. If it is to cut down on social media, then you're probably going to have to have some foresight on choosing a habit that might replace that time that you would usually be spending on social media. But one thing is for sure in all of these. The one thing that is true in almost all of these goals is that they are all driven by some sort of purpose. You know, people don't just want to exercise more and lose weight just for the sake of it. There's something, there's a purpose behind it. There's a specific reason. They do it to be healthier, to have more energy, maybe to look better. The same is true for those looking to live more economically. There's a purpose, a reason behind it. They do it to get out of debt, maybe have more savings, reduce financial stress in their lives. In other words, all of these goals have a purpose behind them. And that purpose creates a criteria or a guide that we use to make our decisions and the why behind it. That clear purpose also brings into focus what our priorities are and what is most important to us. A few years ago, whenever I was interviewing for the job that I have right now, the current job, I will never forget one of the last questions of the interview that was asked. Usually I don't remember interview questions. You know, it's kind of a blur. You're kind of nervous. You know, people, you know, you have a, and, 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 I don't know what your experiences have been, but, you know, this interview in particular, I was sitting at the end of a table, and I had about seven people all looking at me, and I was the one supposed to be answering the questions, right? So none of the, really the, none of the questions that, you know, they asked really stuck with me, except for the last one. And the last one was asked by who my current boss is, and he asked this question. He said, I believe the most important two days in a person's life are the day that they were born and the day that they figured out why. What's your why? So I'd never heard of that question worded to me quite like that. Now, of course, I remember in part my response. I don't remember everything I said. 
I remember, of course, uh, talking about God, talking about serving God, talking about, you know, my faith in Jesus. Not real in-depth. I remember talking about my family, you know, my, my children. Uh, and that, of course, was something that I, 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 I remember saying. And so, I'd never been asked that question in such a way but the interesting thing is that those same individuals that were in that interview, I work with on a daily basis. Some of them have left, but most of them, the, the core of them, they're still there. And as I reflected on that question, as I was coming up with this message, and I was thinking about this idea of purpose, and I was thinking about that question that they asked me, it made me think, have I shown by the way that I walk that the why that I gave them as an answer to their question is true? Were they just words? Or have I demonstrated that they were just words? That they were just a sales pitch? Oh, man, that, that sounds good. People like to hear about you know, people that are family-oriented, people that love God. Not everybody, of course. You get kind of a feel for you know, what kind of people, people are that you're interviewing with, or maybe you learn a little bit about them. You learn that they're a church person or something like that. You throw that in there as a way to maybe earn brownie points in the interview. Have I demonstrated by the way that I walk that the why that I gave them was actually something I truly live by? That I really believe that that's my purpose and I walk with that purpose? Or was it just a sales pitch that I thought would look good? Now, obviously, we sometimes carry ourselves a certain way when we're around a certain group of people, you know, um, we all have been there. You know, sometimes our family knows us better than everybody, which that's usually how it is. But I'm with these people quite a bit. So this is the question I had for myself and a question I want you to ask yourself. When you think about what your purpose in life is, your why, and I'm thinking of it in terms of your spiritual purpose, the purpose that God has for you, do you live a life, do we live a life in our conduct, do we walk in a way that demonstrates that, yes, that is their purpose. That is their purpose. Jesus and purpose, a variety of reasons could be said about what Jesus' purpose is, right? Of course, at the core of what he came to do and what his purpose was, was to provide salvation. And I think that there are two particular instances, one of them is very general, but two particular instances of Jesus' living a life of purpose that Paul and his associates proved to follow. If you were to open it up to John, the fifth chapter, verse 30. Number one thing that Jesus said that he came to do was to do the will of the Father. Jesus was singularly focused on doing the will of the Father. Now, the will of the Father for Jesus and the will of the Father for us are somewhat the same, but different, of course. Jesus isn't calling us to be, you know, the one who dies for people's sin. That's what Jesus' calling was. That's what his will was for his son that he sent here. But John, the fifth chapter, verse 30, breaking into context, Jesus is here in a discussion with the Jews in Jerusalem after healing a crippled man on the Sabbath. And they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath and doing things in a way that wasn't like normal. That's not how we do things around here. They're, they're angry at him. And Jesus says this, I can, in verse 30, I can of myself do nothing as I hear, or I, I can of myself do nothing, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. But the will of my Father who sent me. And a little bit later, in chapter 6, verse 38, and this, this context is where Jesus is in Capernaum, proclaiming to be the bread of life. Jesus says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who set me. The will of him who set me. And Art earlier asked that question about, you know, are you aligning your purpose with God's purpose for you? Are you aligning your life with God's will? Are you thinking about his will or about your own will? I think all of us could probably say, there's times in our life where we're not doing God's will. You know? Uh, you know, I was just talking about, uh, just the other day, 
and this is a kind of a side note, but just the other day I was talking with one of my son Asher's uh, football coaches that I coached with. I coached their football team, and this last year we were just reminiscing about the season that went by, and uh, me and him got a 15-yard personal foul penalty because we were arguing with what ref about a call. And I was thinking about this. I was like, man, where are the different times? You know, you're, you're in a stadium, right? You know, people are behind you. They're watching down on you, coaching kids, eight- and nine-year-olds, third graders. And kids are around there. And then we're sitting there arguing. There wasn't anything, like, belligerent done or said, but we just were arguing with the call. And, of course, they called a 15-yard flag on us. And I was just thinking, like, I was, I was just thinking about, well, I wasn't doing God's will whenever I was sitting there arguing because I would missed the purpose completely, right? Because okay, the purpose isn't to win the football game. I mean, it is. I mean, no, that's, not, that's not true. The purpose is to win the football game. But at that level, the greater purpose is to develop these individuals, to, to provide them some, some you know, experience in working with a team, experience about you know, working hard and being disciplined and things like that. That's why I lost sight of all of that and became singularly focused on what I thought should be the call. And, of course, I can just tell you that there's many other times in my life, uh, and I, when I say many other times, I'm talking about weekly, where, you know, maybe my attitude, the way I react, and even if it's just internal, the way that I get frustrated with something, it's probably not doing the will of God. I'm probably not exhibiting the characteristic and taking on, uh, you know, uh, allowing something to affect me to the level that it should. The second thing that he came to do, which there's, I mean, literally, there's a bunch, but the second one I wanted to bring out was to preach the gospel. We all know that just a few weeks ago, Matthew Steele gave a message about beauty for ashes, I think was the title. And in that message, he talked about Luke, the fourth chapter. And Luke, the fourth chapter, is such an important chapter in Luke's gospel. And we're going to go there. We're going to pick it up in verse one, uh, 18, rather, excuse me, uh, which is an example of Jesus initially coming in and doing something very bold, very courageous, which is going to be our second point. Jesus here proclaims the fulfillment of Isaiah, the 61st chapter, verses 1 and 2, in the synagogue in Nazareth. In verse 18, Jesus stands up in the synagogue, right? His home synagogue. Matt went over kind of the background information. He'd probably been there many times before, and he said, the Spirit, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now Jesus here quotes from Isaiah the 61st chapter, verses 1 and 2, but not all of 2. Only the first part of 2, and I'll kind of bring that out in a minute. In this section that he's preaching from, that the scroll is opened up to, Isaiah is using the language that's reminiscent of the year of Jubilee which announced a deliverance from those in exile in Babylon. And during this period of time in Palestine, Jews of Jesus' day was very focused on those captivity and those deliverance passages because that's what they were looking to. They were living in captivity themselves. Now, it wasn't captivity like that of Babylon or that of Persia, but it was still living in a land that was supposed to be promised to them, but the Romans had occupied now, the year of Jubilee was the 50th year, which was to proclaim the liberty to those who were servants and the return, the land, and return land to the former owners. And we find that in Leviticus, the 25th chapter. We're not going to go there. But these images that Jesus would have been preaching, and they knew this, this scripture. They knew this passage. In fact, the, the thing is, Jesus probably did not turn there. It doesn't indicate that he did. Now, in a synagogue... And they're a little different today, but they have the, the, the weekly Torah portion and something called the half Torah. Now, the half Torah is the prophets. They actually have a lit, liturgical, like a specific week of the year. They have a name for it, and they have a section of the Torah that they read. And then they also have a section of the prophets. Now, this probably was the early days. Now, the Torah portion was probably early, you know, established early in the synagogue era. But the half Torah portion might have changed a little bit. But it seems to be that this might have been the, you know, where the scroll was, was turned to for that week's reading of the prophets, the half Torah. And these images brought out here string together these concepts that all of them knew about, this, 
concept of the messianic king or the servant of the Lord and the prophetic herald or the prophetic announcement of salvation. And those living in Palestine in these days might have had ideas of a restored Israel when they would hear these things as they were looking for that. When their oppressors, the Romans, they were put down, the messianic king had come in and physically drove out those Romans and the land was brought back to Israel and the messianic age could, could begin. So here, Jesus' purpose, he had five things, or his mission. According to Isaiah, uh, five things that he spoke about. There could actually be more if he would have read the second part of verse 2, which we'll talk about in a minute. The first one was to proclaim the good news to the poor. I wanted to say all of these could be applied to us. I'm not saying that this is our purpose per se, that we're proclaiming the gospel like Jesus did. We're proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom like Jesus did in the sense that we're pointing him to, to Jesus. Obviously, we're not, you know, the Messiah. We're not the ones delivering the captives. But what I mean by it could apply to us is simply that uh, on a spiritual level, if we think about it, all of us could be considered these categories. All of us could be considered spiritually poor or captive. All of us could be considered the broke, a part of the brokenheartedness. Because when we look at ourselves in light of sin or what we were, we could be all of these things at the spiritual level. But the first one was to proclaim the good news, the gospel, essentially, to the poor. Now, this was a reference to both the physical poor as well as the spiritual poor. Many people in the first century were poor, especially in Palestine. And a large amount of people would most likely qualify as being in the socioeconomic category of poverty. The poor was a key term that Luke used often in his gospel. And it was people, it was off, off, oftentimes a reference to people who were mistreated, who had been forgotten, who were despised. This was one of the beatitudes of Jesus, if you remember, in Matthew, the fifth chapter, where Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, he came according to what he read and fulfill here, in Isaiah, the 61st chapter, was to proclaim liberty to the captives. Like the previous, this also includes both physical captivity as well as spiritual captivity to sin. And we see there's so much imagery that's you know, used between the idea of being enslaved in Egypt and being enslaved but to sin and the concepts that are you know, used to give us the imagery of what Jesus, as the Lamb of God, does for us on a spiritual level. Not only that, the idea of liberty here in the Greek is aphesis with an A. And is translated remission three other times in Luke referring to the remission of sins. So there is a physical element here, but there's also a spiritual element as we know that remission of sins, that word remission, liberty, breaking free, is a concept that we know within Christianity that's brought to us in the New Testament about our salvation. Third is proclaim sight to the blind. Physical blindness that we see Jesus continually healing people. But also spiritual blindness. As 1 Corinthians, the second chapter tells us, Paul tells us that the world is blinded to the things of God. Number four, proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. Again, it goes into the same thing. The same concepts. This includes the healing of the sick casting out demons, forgiving sins, and promoting an upright and just conduct among people. Now, we need to notice how these previous descriptions are a form of oppression. So we look at, you know, people who are just oppressed, people who are blind, people who are captive. They're all forms of oppression. And that's what Jesus came to do, to release us from that variety of oppression that sin has brought to this world and has creeped into so many aspects of this human existence. So, the fifth thing, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, Leviticus, the 25th chapter, verse 10, kind of outlines this idea of the year of Jubilee, which is being referred to here. Israel was to count seven times seven years and to come to the 49th year. Much like we're doing today, we count seven times, you know, seven weeks, right? Seven times seven is the... Day, you know, in, as we calculate for days to get to the 49th day, which we w we're at today, 
And today we're proclaiming tomorrow's Pentecost, right? Well, on the 49th year, at the Day of Atonement, uh, they would basically blow the trumpet on that day, on the 49th day of the year, which was late in the year because it's fall, right? To usher in that 50th year, that year of liberty, that year of release where people were forgiven of their debts, their possessions were getting, given back to them oftentimes, and also to allow the land to rest, a sabbatical year. So here Jesus is using this as a metaphor for salvation and proclaiming that this is one of the purposes that I have. This is my purpose. I have been anointed to come and proclaim these things. These things that you all know about. These things that you've read about your entire life. These things that bring up images of old. I'm sure people, you know, other than just the scriptures, I'm sure that kids growing up in first century Palestine probably had stories that were passed down from generation to generation about what great, 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 great grandparents experienced when they were in Babylon or in Persia. They no doubtably had heard about those things. Maybe they, you know, weren't written down, but they looked forward to this time that Jesus was proclaiming that the time is now. Now notice, Jesus stops the second part of Isaiah, the 61st chapter, verse 2. Because the second part, the first part says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, but the second part, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. We know that that wasn't his purpose when he first came in that first time. But that purpose will be coming soon as he ushers in that kingdom when he comes when Jesus returns the second time. Now, our purpose is a little bit more difficult, right? And we're sure, you know, it's one thing to identify the purpose of Jesus and that of Paul as we read the scriptures. It is another thing to, of course, identify our own specific purpose. Because this is a two-part issue. Because I think we would all, you know, know and, and agree that we all share the same purpose of doing the Father's will for our life. That's universal. Every one of us share in the purpose and what we should do, and that is to do the Father's will for our life. But I think that we would also agree that we all have different journeys that God has set before us to fulfill his will for us in this life. God hasn't commissioned all of us to do the same thing. He commissions us all to grow in, his, in faith, to grow in the stature of Christ, but the the route that we take, and what I mean by the route, like the different roles that he gives us, the different opportunities that he gives us, are going to be a little different. Not everyone's commissioned to be pastors. Not everyone's commissioned to be teachers. Not everyone's commissioned to be evangelists. There are different spiritual gifts, as 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, verse 4 through 6, tells us. And I didn't give this passage to, Ron, uh, to Brian, I apologize if he isn't able to get it up there. But that passage, those passages tell us, as Paul, writing a little bit later from this letter, he says, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is of the same God who works all in all. We have to ask our question, or ask the question, are we walking with the purpose? What is our purpose, spiritually speaking? What is our why? The second main point that's based on verse 2 is to walk with boldness and courage. Walk with boldness and courage. So we talk about walking worthily. One of the ways that we can walk worthily is to walk with bold, boldness and courage. As Paul shows us as well as Jesus himself. Verse 2 says, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So this boldness and courage that the apostles experienced, we can look and see specifically what they're talking about. They cited, like, here's an example of how we were treated. We actually have... The story of what took place. So let's go to Acts the 16th chapter. And let's actually look at that. Paul's purpose of serving the living God. Drove him to proclaim Christ. Despite the consequences that it would bring. And this is not the only time that we can see. 
consequences that were brought to Paul or the other apostles for preaching Christ. Now, before we start, I'm just going to kind of summarize the first section here. Because Paul comes to, right, at, right before Paul and his companions, and may I even add, in this, Luke was with them, because Luke is talking in the first person. So you have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Okay? Luke's the writer of the, the or not the gospel, but the book of Acts. But they came to Thessalonica. Right before they did that, Luke doesn't seem to be uh, a part of, of going to Thessalonica. Uh, but right before they came to Thessalonica, they arrived at a city that's called Philippi. And uh, this city was established by Augustus as a Roman colony for the purpose of making homes for his military veterans. And he also, in the process of doing that, established a pretty large military presence that included a sizable population of actual Roman citizens, including Paul himself. Uh, they were, he was a Roman citizen. Uh, despite that, he still suffers the consequences that uh, allegedly, according to law, he wasn't supposed to have to suffer. So as they come to this city, uh, that's a Roman colony, uh, they have this initial encounter with this woman by the name of Lydia, who happened to be someone who was known as a God-fearer. Now, a God-fearer was basically a Gentile who believed and worshipped the God of Israel. They weren't a Jewish, they weren't a, a, a proselyte. They weren't you know, in the process of conversion, but they had heard about the God of Israel, and they believed in the God of Israel. Now, at, at hearing Paul's preaching, she became convicted by Paul's teachings and the things that he was saying about the gospel, and she becomes baptized. And not only her, but her entire household, her, her children. It seems to be that she is probably a widow, according to when you look at you know, background commentators and, and talking about there's many widows during this age. Uh, you know, she might have you know, inherited a business from her husband because it seemed that she was pretty wealthy because she invites Paul uh, to, and, and his companions to come and to stay with her in her house. So... At some point in the future, after this, uh, they get into some trouble because they were doing the same thing. They were going to you know, pray beside the river, by, by water, maybe a synagogue. And there was this woman, this young woman with the spirit, this young slave girl with the spirit that kept calling out and basically was using like the pagan ways of chanting about a God and chanting about Paul and the, the, the God that Paul was proclaiming. And so Paul demanded this spirit to come out of this slave girl, and it, it got them into some trouble. So the common language that we might be familiar with, that he exercised the spirit, that this girl was you know, proclaiming to have this spirit, and Paul comes over there after a, a time, and he literally casts the spirit out of her, and there the trouble comes. Because people seem to believe that this girl had some sort of uh, ability because she had this spirit. Uh, and people, you know, looking at this, I think it has something to do with a snake spirit. And it has something to do with Greek mythology. Obviously, Philippi is on the, uh, is in, you know, is, is there in Macedonia, in that Macedonian region where Greece was, even though the Romans had control of that area now. Uh, but this caused them problems because she was a slave girl. She proclaimed uh, people's fortunes because they believed that her having the spirit could give them fortune or tell them their fortune. But remember, she's a slave girl, so those fortunes didn't go to her. She had masters. And when they saw Paul cast out this spirit from her, they saw that their profits were going to be in jeopardy and they were going to financially be hurt by this. So let's just read this story. Let's just read it. Chapter 16, verse 16 says, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And, did, and this she did for many days. Now, it seems to be, that's not something you would think Paul would be offended at or get annoyed at. So Paul senses that she's not doing it because she herself believes per se but rather, she's doing it to try to grab... She might see Paul getting a following. Oh, people are coming out and really listening to this guy. What I'm going to do is I'm going to attach myself to his God, and those people who are following him, maybe I'll be able to you know, get a following with them. They'll come to me and think I'm associated with him. Paul gets frustrated with this. And he, in verse 18, and this, did, and this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, 
I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out, of that, and he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Verse 20, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanded the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here's the charge. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they would have been taken to this place that probably called the Agora. It's another word for the Roman forum, basically. And they would be accused before this word, I think, says magistrates, but it's the strategoi, which is in Greek, and it refers to the two officials in the city and any Roman colony who had the powers to judge cases and also to inflict punishment. And so their charge was bringing trouble a term that means to agitate or throw into confusion the city by advocating unlawful customs. Now, it's actually true. Roman law did prohibit the adoption of foreign cults or gods that were not officially recognized. Historians, though, would point to that's one of those laws that it wasn't oftentimes necessarily always enforced. But if it was causing some sort of issue, then, of course, it's, it's kind of like, a, not a loophole, but it's kind of like a, a fine print item that these individuals that were upset about the slave girl being, you know, the spirit being came out of her. It's like a fine point, like a, you know, the fine print that they were able to accuse them of. So Roman law uh, uh, would prohibit the adoption of foreign culture gods that were not officially recognized. But as Paul, or not Paul, but Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us, we know their real motivation. It wasn't that they were, you know, preaching another religion. I mean, Roman, Rome to an extent was, you know, open as long as you weren't throwing chaos. The, whatever you were preaching wasn't going to throw out or uh, cause chaos. So the real motivation, of course, was to having them, of having them arrested was their anger at the loss of profit by Paul's casting out the spirit from the young girl. So that was the charge. They got kind of as a technicality. Now it seems to me, from what I've read, some of these Romans would be happy to punish people. I mean, they didn't mess around. As we see, you can read about the realities of crucifixion in Jesus' day and what he would have went through. But when we look at the punishment, it should be noted that somehow two people aren't with them. Timothy and Luke. They were not included in the actual punishment. They might have been included in the initial charging or the initial bringing them, but they weren't included in the actual punishment. And we don't know why, but it may be because both of them were not Jewish or because, because there was, there's language in here that indicates that these individuals are kind of racist against Jews, by the way. And so maybe because, you know, being Jews, in verse 20 it says, and they brought them to the magistrate and said, these men being Jews, when you look at the actual Greek, the emphasis is, seems to indicate that there was like some extra added racism that's going on there. We don't know why that Luke and uh, Timothy were not a, a part of this, but they might have been considered, well, they're not Jews, so they're not going to be punished, or they might, they might have been looked at as not the primary agitators. You know, Paul and Silas might have been the primary ones that were doing the preaching and things like that. But here, the authorities uh, did several things. Number one, they tore their clothes. They tore their clothes off of them. They beat them with rods and threw them into prison with a jailer guard to watch over them. A specific, dedicated individual that was there to watch them to make sure they did not escape. And the account tells us that they were placed in the innermost cell. Now that was usually the place in a jail during these times that was, number one, it was a place that was reserved for really violent criminals, someone who... Uh, had committed a really serious crime or someone who was of low economic status. Someone that they thought, oh, that, someone that's, you know, of no importance. 
So it seems to be that this was a way of humiliating Paul and Silas. Could have also been an indication that they had seen some results going on in Philippi and people following after them, and they thought, these men right here, uh, their message is a little too effective for us. And their boldness is out of this world. We keep those guys over there in the innermost cell and do not let them leave because we know that everything we're doing to them, who knows, is really not doing much. So it was a form of potentially a form of humiliation. But it was also a form of torture as they were placed in what are called stocks. Now, I didn't really read this many times and didn't really pay a lot of attention to it, but the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary on the book of Acts has this to say about stocks. It says, it was a long metal comb with spaces between each of the teeth for the legs of a number of prisoners to be placed. A metal rod was inserted into the holes in the top of each tooth and anchored to the floor. The bar pressed tightly on the legs and made it impossible for the prisoners to shift positions to avoid discomfort. Sleep was only possible through laying or sitting on the floor. The stocks were not only a security measure, but were also a form of torture. This wasn't just some you know, punishment, I'm going to slap you around a little bit and let you be on your way. This was a physical torment. This was a difficult thing to be able to endure if you weren't bold, if you weren't courageous, and if you weren't genuinely being led by the Spirit of God. Let's just read the, about the response. What was the response of Paul and Silas? Pick it up in verse 25 in Acts 16. It says, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31. So they said, Believe on the Lord Christ, or Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and you and your household then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in, were in his house. And he took them to the, the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when they had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. This was an example of boldness and courage. Despite the physical pain, the emotional toil, maybe not getting sleep, and after being beaten and flogged, hit with rods, they were put in stocks in an uncomfortable position, let alone the public disgrace they experienced. It is apparent that they walked with boldness. Their response was praying and singing hymns. After being beaten and put in prison stocks. They didn't flee. They were, you know, the earthquake came, the place shook, they became freed. They didn't immediately say, let's get out of here. We're free. (laughs) I mean, that's the normal reaction, right? You're in prison unjustly and you are arrested. You've been beaten. Who knows what they have in store for us tomorrow. Let's get out of here. They didn't even flee when their shackles were loosened by the earthquake. Instead, they evangelized. They evangelized to the jailer. The jailer is sitting here going, oh my goodness, I am going. I mean, it shows you he's getting ready to commit suicide, it says. It shows you the severe punishment he was getting ready to go through. But it seems that something happened. Now, this jailer, he's just doing a job. Who knows what his personal life was like? Maybe, you know, this is just a job for him. What we do know is that something moved him. He believed that whatever these men were preaching was the truth. They saw the boldness. They saw the courage. He's sitting in here looking at people with blood probably dripping down him, sweat, half naked, in stocks, singing hymns. 
That's a pretty bold and courageous thing to do. And so the response was to evangelize the, the jailer. But, as 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, verse 2 tells us, they went to the next city knowing full well that what happened in Philippi could be awaiting them in Thessalonica. They knew full well that they could face the same treatment there. In verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 2, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God and much conflict. And when they got to Thessalonica, they were successful. But they still had great opposition, as we were told. The actual word for we were bold in our God to speak to you is actually a word that is very difficult to pronounce. So, pardon me if I pronounce it incorrectly, but it's peres, peresias my, peresias my, which is a word that means the courage or dared. We had the courage or dared to come and preach despite the treatment that they endured there at Philippi. Not only that, when they, were at Phil- or when they were in Thessalonica, we know that even though they didn't have the treatment that they had in Philippi, they didn't know that going into Thessalonica. They knew that after the fact. Well, you know, when we look over what we experienced, Philippi was probably worse. But going into Thessalonica, they didn't even blink. They leave the prison. And not only that, Paul actually, in his boldness, demands, they said, what do you mean just leave? When, he, when he's released... Uh, and after he baptized the, you know, the jailer, not, he doesn't baptize him. It doesn't say, he probably did. It doesn't necessarily say he baptized him. But he, you know, after he con- the jailer converts, and then uh, the magistrates actually were going to let him go. And they're like, you know, they basically wanted them to leave. And he's like, well, hold on. What do you mean you just want me to leave? You sit here and publicly do this, but you want me to leave in silence? No, you show everyone that you're releasing me. Because what you did was illegal. Because he was actually a Roman citizen. He actually brought that up to him. He was... A pretty smart individual. So while they were in Thessalonica, they experienced much conflict. And this word is actually uh, a word that, uh, which we won't get into, but basically it's a word, agon, which comes from, you know, pictures the idea of an athlete's struggle to win a race or contest. A contest as they fight against their opposition. And we know, and if you were here for the first message, we know that first Thessalonians 1, it talks about endurance. There's a lot of athletic type imagery here as you have to endure. You have to, you know, train yourself to have the endurance and you have to, you know, endure the agony, the agon, the, uh, you know, the outside opposition as you go forward on the purpose that God has set for you. I'm going to close here real quickly. With Jesus, Jesus and boldness. Actually, I'm going to talk about Jesus and the apostles kind of simultaneously. You know, earlier we talked about Jesus and his purpose, and I think we could all agree that we could spend lifetimes talking about and analyzing what Jesus' purpose was when he came to this earth. We know that the Father's will was what Jesus' purpose was, and that constitutes many different things. But what's interesting is that Jesus showed such boldness in his life. Probably the most extreme form of boldness that we had ever seen when we saw Jesus face one of the most powerful men in all of Judea. And that was Pontius Pilate. Jesus had just got done being tried by the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin goes and brings him to one of the most powerful men in this region and Pilate asked him a simple question are you a king then Jesus would face a fork in the road whenever Pilate asked him this question he had two options he could deny this claim or he could speak the truth we must remember one thing one of the primary ways that the Jewish leaders try to get Pilate to crucify Jesus is they actually tried to use Roman law against Pilate himself. We know that the chance that the Jews kept making at Pilate was this. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. That's in John, the 19th chapter, verse 19. 
Pilate, you have to do this. You're no friend of Caesar, everyone hearing him. If you don't, this man's claiming to be a king. And so Pilate asked Jesus in John 18, verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. An extreme form and example of boldness and courage to continue to stay on track to be about the Father's purpose and align, as Art said, God's purpose with our purpose. The early church in boldness. I'll just quickly go through this because of time. But in light of Pentecost coming tomorrow, it's hard to get around this. When we open up the Gospels and we read about the actions, the behaviors, the dispositions of, I'll call them the disciples, because that's what they were there then, right? We see this beginning. We see this beginning of these individuals, these young men that Jesus had recruited. That Jesus had recruited, and we see these young men, and we see what was typical of them, and that was fear. They were scared all the time. All the way from being on the Sea of Galilee where a storm arose, and basically they frantically cry out to Jesus, Jesus saves us, save us, you know, we're, we're, we're getting ready to perish. And Jesus looks at them and says, why are, you, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. So that's kind of at the beginning, right? And all the way at the end, we also see the disciples still fearful. Scared. We see that at the very end, what happens? Peter denies Jesus multiple times. The disciples flee. They didn't understand what was happening. They didn't have the boldness that they're getting ready to have. But when we see Acts 2, when we see Jesus be raised from the dead and come back and tell them, wait here for the promise of the Father, we see the beginning of an absolute transformation that takes place in these individuals. We see the disciples turned apostles courageously stand up in the face of the same leaders that put Jesus on trial that led him to his crucifixion, boldly proclaim him as the Savior of all. We see these disciples turned apostles heal in the name of Jesus without caring who was witnessing this, even though they were demanded over and over and over and over again to stop preaching this name of Jesus. We see the disciples turned apostles thank God when they suffered and were persecuted for Jesus' sake. We see the disciples turn apostles walk boldly and courageously. Now, most of us probably have never experienced the same bodily dangers that Jesus and Paul or the apostles did, as we see in the book of Acts, for preaching the gospel or for claiming to be a Christian. But we definitely know that we live in a world where there's other consequences, social consequences, ridicule, for just being bold enough to proclaim Jesus or to be upright in proclaiming what's right. We live in a world that's very mixed on what they believe is right and what they believe is wrong. What we do know is, is that we are commissioned and called to walk with boldness and courage our faith. And, of course, to have a purpose. And we have other... Uh, points that we'll go over next week about uh, what it constitutes or some examples of what it looks like to walk worthily. So walk with a purpose and walk with boldness and courage. We know tomorrow ushers in day 50, the day of Pentecost, and we started this countdown weeks ago. And from a Christian perspective, we know that Pentecost is a day that God pour out, poured out his spirit on the church. And from that point on, we see that God has provided the key ingredient for our transformation. It's what allowed and enabled those disciples to be turned into apostles with boldness and courage and with an absolute definitive purpose without even having to ask them what their purpose was. They lived it. They walked it. From that point on, we see that God has given us that ingredient 
that ingredient for our transformation. We know that that's because in that spirit, he's taken his abode in us. He's taken up his abode in us. And he is fashioning us according to his will as long as we don't fight against him. He doesn't create a robot in us. He is creating a creature in us that is developing. That is developing. As we reflect on the points that we touched on today, let us remember to walk with a purpose and walk with boldness and courage in our Christian journey.